Hello and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always... His shield brother, Axel Wright. You sound worn down, man. Uh, I just, I got a lot going on, and I got all these papers behind me, and emails I gotta answer, and I just got a lot to do, and I'd like to spend some time tonight playing Borderlands, so hopefully I can get to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and keep this thing on track. All right. So let's roll right into our Patreon sound off. Those are, they are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McCann, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Reed D, and Stefan R. Martinez. Now, if you'd like to help us out and join that illustrious legion, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. It only costs you 25 cents an episode, and it goes a long way towards making sure we can do this week to week. Speaking of, this week we're continuing our Bootober. Yeah, that was lame. I, still, I'm going to do it anyway. It's fun. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun, you know, doing this two months straight. We'll see how we feel at the end of October, but we got we're gonna bounce back something a little bit more fun since we did serial killers. We're gonna talk about the occult as it appears in pop culture. As a quick uh, before we go into that, I want to say in our episode last week, Krug taught us about a, a killer named Ed Kemper. Just today, I watched a video uh, technique critique. This guy, I think I told you about him talking about before. He looks at accents. Uh, the people do in movies and compares them to like how the accent should be. And in the video he released two days ago, one of the accents he talked about was Ed Kemper's. So I saw a video of this guy being interviewed and uh, anyway, it, it was terrifying. Let's move is on. He to, is, okay. I was going to ask, is he as terrifying as he was described? More so like listening to him. You can tell like he carefully chose every word and was just as intelligent as he comes off on paper. Like, just just go watch that video so you don't have to watch a whole interview with him, but you'll see what I'm talking about. It's I maintain damn. he is a failed experiment in a super soldier. Anyway, so off serial killers to the occult. I, that's a, usually it's the other way around, I suppose. But So we had this idea to just think about the occult, magic, things like that is something that everyone is aware of because fiction makes you know great use of it, but rules are always you know, different, but there are some rules that are like normal and some rules that are kind of expected, like salt and iron for ghosts and stuff. And we just thought, well, we look at some of the, you know, how this is treated by different fictions and real groups and real people and, and things like that. Yeah. I figure it's a nice fun departure from last week's very heavy, depressing episode. And let's barrel forward with the internet's favorite Lovecraft. So Lovecraft, easy way to start. Everyone's probably heard of the term Eldritch. And you've probably heard the term Lovecraft as well, but for anyone who might be somewhat out of the loop, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was an author um, in, I want to say, was it the early 20th century, right? He's not that, like the pictures are always in black. Yeah, he's not right around the 20th century, because the 1900s. Yeah, he wrote he wrote a few bo uh, books and stories. Uh, the the big one was the Mountains of Madness is the one that's usually quoted. Although he also wrote the the Call of Cthulhu, which is if anyone has ever heard Cthulhu is the most well known Eldritch deity. Funny because when you actually read the story and read about Cthulhu, he's not a ancient one or an old one. He's a prophet of the old ones. Yeah, and somehow he seems to have like become stuck in the cultural consciousness because there's a whole other realm of lesser beings greater beings and general insanity that you gotta wonder what this guy was on yeah and there's tons that most of them have names that are like really like supposed to be hard to pronounce like atlak naka which is the sp a spider god or uh oh geez okay i'm i was looking at this word bout zuga mog the bringer of pestilence <laughs> and you got to admire the creativity, which is probably why some people have taken from, you know, his works is the guy had a lot of really interesting ideas. Also, racist ones aside. I was about to say, let's let's elephant in the room. Lovecraft was very uncomfortable when it comes to his views on race. And we're just going to put that aside because this episode is not about him it's this is about the occult and his work which is influential no matter what how problematic the person was <laughs> so one of my favorite directors guillermo del toro was a huge fan of hp lovecraft and you can see it in so many of his creature designs and his dream project being in the mountains of madness which i don't know how many times that has started and installed and has not worked but i really want that movie because i want more movies from that man 
Well, here's here's an inherent problem with uh, Lovecraftian mythos, uh, eldritch horror, and things like that. It is by its very nature so alien to what we consider regular horror. Like a lot, p- games and movies have been getting better about this. Re- fewer movies. There are more games made about eldritch stuff than movies for this exact reason. And that a big part of what Lovecraft was doing and what eldritch horror accomplishes is that it is unknowable it taps into what is supposed to be the most primal fear of humans which is the unknown you could argue that death is itself the fear of the unknown so he can so lovecraft constructed his mythos around this concept of not only are these creatures unknown they are literally unknowable the premise of the mountain of mad the mountains of madness is that the explorers who encounter these beings in the mountains cannot their sanity can't hold what they experience they are incapable of knowing them yeah so it exactly how do you put that to film yeah you can't that's why the most the most common depiction of cthulhu is this big uh humanoid with a tentacled face and that's easy to put in movies and stuff but the fact that that design is so well known is inherently antithetical to what eldritch horror is in truth if you were to look upon cthulhu or any of these beings your mind would shatter because the very visage of what they are is uncomprehensible that's why the only characters in lovecraftian stories who seem to actually know what's going on are interpreted as insane by the rest of the people around them and yeah trying to put that on film is extremely difficult i don't think it's impossible but it's like you can't really show the thing itself because by showing it you are immediate if you show it and it doesn't drive the audience insane you are not accomplishing what (laughs) this thing is supposed to do you know yeah and i mean we have to scale it back but i mean look at almost all well a lot of del toro especially in hellboy a lot of those designs both in the comic and the movie were lifted straight from lovecraft I mean, the demon hound from the first one is straight up from there. And for better or worse, I'd argue that Lovecraft-inspired Bird Box, which was that weird viral Netflix movie, I don't know if you ever saw it or not. I didn't see it, but I would say... You didn't miss much. (laughs) Yeah, but I would say like a great example of of, uh, Lovecraftian horror is something like Amnesia, The Dark Descent, where it's even built into it that the mechanic of that game is that if you look... If, if, uh, if the enemy creatures, whatever they are, are in your visage, your sanity starts just going. So you never get a good look at the things chasing you because to look at them, you die. So the game built in this mechanic to keep you from really getting a look at what these things are. So that heightens the, the terror because you're being chased by something that is an unknown and is unknowable because to try to know it is to fail to die so it's like building that mechanic into the game was such a effective means of conveying eldritch horror i think so why do you think lovecraft is so ingrained in nerd culture specifically uh i think it has to do with how many geek icons are directly inspired by him i mean one of the obvious examples would be like i don't know if this is true someone could tell me if um there's no actual connection, but I would be not at all surprised if if H.R. Uh, Giger was heavily inspired by Lovecraft. Yeah, I can and see the, that with a bit more wieners thrown in. Yeah, yeah, but the point is, then Giger was the was the alien, and the alien is this whole. The point is that the alien mythos itself feels very uh, eldritch, but the fact that Cthulhu mythos um, and Lovecraftian mythos is so huge and there's not really anything else like I mean, now there's a bunch of stuff like it, stuff that inspired it, but it is wholly unique in its like conception. The fact that, you know, you've got all these entities that are supposed to be like beyond gods, beyond titans. They are these unknowable things that don't even care about that like are incapable necessarily of being understood and their methods being understood. The fact that that is so easily applied to different kinds of um, movies and games and, and concepts. And uh, as far as like horror goes, we've talked before about, I'm not a big fan of horror, but I understand that generally speaking, uh, was it Yahtzee Croshaw at his definition of like the different types of horror? There's the horror, horror that comes up and goes, oh, boogity woogity woo. There's the horror that like waits and, you know, sits behind you. You're waiting for it to go boogity woogity woo, but it never does. And the longer it doesn't, the more you're, you know, tense. And then I don't remember the third one. It's like a combination of two. But the point is that Eldritch is entirely that second one. Like it's just, 
unknown intention and you're waiting for the hammer to drop and it doesn't drop and the atmosphere gets more oppressive and anyway i, I think i got off on a i don't know what exactly what i went off on but point is i think that uh that is inherently what draws uh, like eldritch fandom is that everything that is remotely like it is drawn directly to it similarly to how uh fantasy right like no matter what your fantasy is someone is going to easily tie it to lord of the rings because lord of the rings is well, the lord of the rings yeah somebody's has been built off lord of the rings and kind of shaped what we know as fantasy like orcs are the way orcs are because of lord of the rings same thing with elves and dwarves and crazy shit like exactly and the same and a very very similar thing is happening with lovecraft's work where anything that is like about great unknowable otherworldly creatures or uh things whose visages are like inherently as far away from humanistic as possible as we get a lot of the tentacles and eyes and things like that uh, i wouldn't be surprised if cronenberg uh, was probably inspired by uh lovecraft as well as an example it's like easy to tie these things all to lovecraft i can see that and i'm trying to remember my first real exposure to lovecraft was with you and i don't remember if it was you or some of people in that social circle that were big into lovecraft at the time it wouldn't have been me i've never been huge into lovecraft i i respect uh i, I respect eldritch mythos for its power and i like it conceptually in other things but i've only read like i read the mountains of madness once when i was in high school i don't really remember it too well i've never read the call of cthulhu i was i'm not a huge fan of it i'm just more aware of it and i find it interesting than you know, i just remember there was somebody in that social circle they were just you know that was their jam and i remember that kind of put me off it for a while because they were so intensely into it like all right back it up a bit i get it you're into squid people that's cool <laughs> yeah and uh Again, that like you just said, the fact that you can kind of generalize that shows how where Lovecraftian mythos has gone. Like I, I'm looking right now at just a description of uh, old ones. Uh, Nyogtha appears as an inky cloud of shadows. And see, Obumbu, a giraffe-like reptilian monster. <laughs> so it's so varied, man. Yeah, and I like that aspect, which is why I think really creative people, which again, like Guillermo del Toro loves it, is, you know, he gets to create all sorts of goofy monsters that defy physics and go, Lovecraft. But at the same time, I'm thinking back to what put me off an event originally, was it's very easily can slip into pretentious territory when, no, 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 you can't comprehend it. Don't even try and think of it. It is so beyond your scope of thinking. And that, that might have been what put me off. It was, it just felt obnoxious. Like, yeah, I get it. You can't grasp it that's cool i i understand that i do think it's funny that in this case it is literally built part and parcel right in, in what the mythos is is it's meant to be not understandable and that the act of trying to understand it itself is the like you know it's a futile effort and that's particularly interesting oh, but I don't oh know the ending dark but no it's just lots of tentacles and strange shaped creatures and you never really see what they are and it's very again tension driven because you never see what it is but it's always there i don't know any understood eldritch horror i've played several games like i said uh, amnesia the dark descent is a great one as good as amnesia and it is a bit more obvious about its um eldritch horror but it still like touches on the idea of uh, insanity and breaking of the mind a lot a lot better so but like i said i haven't seen any movies that really do that for me or, or shows it's it's a lot harder i think like something about a game being like you are the one in control i think makes it easier to convey these feelings directly into the the player oh yeah i agree and there's a boatload of bad movies directly adapting lovecraft's books out there i mean you know, I think it's called The Deep. It is a really, really bad one based off an interesting book. So I play, I realized recently, I play a lot of D&D. Like I thought I played plenty, but I've got like three weekly sessions right now. Yeah, something like that. Problem. Yeah, it's just, it's my primary method of hanging out with people. And these are people that I wouldn't see otherwise. So that's my, I don't know what you would call it. Let's go with justification uh, there. I don't get off easy. But point is, I want to share that uh, one of 
or um, Snailboat Captain, who we've had on before. We, I was talking with him. We were developing an item for a level 10 wizard. Don't need to go into the details, but the point is, there's an item in D&D called a Bag of Devouring. Do you know what a Bag of Holding is? Yeah, it's the standard, you know, go-to Deus Ex device. Okay, a Bag of Devouring is kind of like the inverse. It's a Bag of Holding, but anything you put into it just gets eaten. The implication in how it's written, in, and this is how we interpret it anyway, is that the bag of devouring is connected to an eldritch being out in you know, the void, and that it's not really aware of the bag. The bag is just an extension of it, and anything that's eaten like feeds the entity, right? And that's not the only place. Like, uh, There is a class in D&D built entirely around... Eldritch, not, not entirely, but uh, the warlock, right? A warlock is a character that creates a pact with a um, uh, an entity of some kind. Usually they're demons or angels or something like that, but one of the pacts you can make is with an old one. And it's less a pact and more like you just touch this entity's, just some part of its consciousness, and it might not even be aware of you at all, or maybe it is. You don't know. But <laughs> I always wanted to make a D&D character whose thing was he was a warlock, with packed to the book so a book would be a special thing and whenever the book was uh open he would rave like a madman and say crazy things and then if the book was closed he would be normal <laughs> so that would be interesting to play because it's hard to rant like a madman without being a madman yeah exactly but i thought it would be fun to do i never got around to doing it but this point is that's one of my most frequent interactions with Eldritch Horror is in D&D because it is very popular to put in those kind of things. I know that um, a lot of people out there probably first encountered it, a lot of people in our age group anyway, probably first encountered it in something like World of Warcraft, where uh, I don't know about in regular Warcraft, because I know you played Warcraft before it became an MMO, but I know at least in World of Warcraft that there is a species, a race of like the, the great ones or the old ones that are, are pretty much uh, Eldritch uh, or Lovecraftian gods, like straight up, and that the only aspects of them appear because if one actually appeared on Azeroth, then everyone would be dead. <laughs> so, Yeah, that came way into the MMO World of Warcraft days. Like, I, I was know, there for the simpler times. I know one of them. I only know one, two by name. There's C'Thun, which looks like if the Eye of Sauron ha- had a squid body. And then there's um, Yogg-Sauron. I only know this from Hearthstone. Yogg-Sauron looks like if a if a giant clam had teeth, kind of, <laughs> I think. Yeah, see, you can definitely, Lovecraft is kind of, you know, permeated every aspect of nerd culture in a very insidious way, which is kind of fitting when you think of Yeah, I just re-looked up a picture of Yogg-Sauron. So it's like a giant clam with teeth, but also other, like, mouths just attached to it. No eyes, and, uh, you know, just some tentacles. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just in the cultural consciousness, and we don't know why, and it's feeding off all our nerdy, nerdy juice. I suppose so, but I, I've got at least one friend who's super into Eldritch Horror. Like, when we were doing, he was DMing a, D, uh, a D&D game with us, and the whole plot was that a high, powerful old one had corrupted all of the regular gods. Like, at one point, we literally went to Asgard, and fought the Norse gods who'd all been essentially corrupted and possessed by this old one. So, which my character was a Viking, so this was pretty surreal. Anyway, that kind of stuff happens in games all the time. So let's move on to the next, you know, one that it's a pretty easy segue from D&D, and that is Satanism and, of course, the parallel Catholicism. And I say parallel Catholicism because the Catholic Church in horror movies and whatnot is just kind of a grab bag of whatever they wanted. So... A cult, right? Uh, the the point of this episode is to talk about magic systems and a cult. And with with Eldritch, the whole point of how magic was is that it's unknowable. You have to be insane to basically do it. In Catholicism, uh, in uh, in in angel, god, devil, demon systems that exist in movies, a vast majority of movies, it tends to be tied very directly to well, one source. Uh, the Bible, well, one of the Testaments, depending on, but generally the same single religion and its branches, which is pretty interesting because it's not necessarily extremely consistent. And a lot of times in fiction, magical power 
comes directly from uh, either artifacts or bloodlines. And what I mean by that is um, one of the best examples, let's look at the uh, the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark, is a an occult item. Sorry if this is your religion. I'm not actually like criticizing. I'm just saying for terms of definition, this is what this is a magical item that in that story gains its magical power by basically being something that that contained the word of God, right? Like God is the most powerful being in this in this system. His word was on these tablets, these commandments. This chest carried these tablets, and that alone granted it this crazy power am i interpreting that right that's more or less how i've always read it i mean we'll have our friend chris weigh in for any catholic questions because he's the closest thing we have to a catholic viewer one of my favorite examples of catholic or or christian christ-based occultism artifacting kind of concept is have you ever seen the show helsing ultimate i watched helsing ultimate abridged Okay, well then you know the the basis I'm talking about. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's a, a show, an anime, a very very pretty one about uh, basically Dracula, um, but the Dracula who is also Vlad Tepes. Uh, uh, anyway, but near the end of the show, a character who is one of the best characters in that show, uh, Father Alexander Anderson, who is a priest with the Catholic. Uh, he's uh, for Alexanderson, who is a a holy unholy abominations and things like that he gets an item called uh the helena's nail it is literally one of the nails that impaled jesus on the crucifix it's supposed to be like i think his right hand or something like that but the point is that's all the nail is it was just a regular nail that got impaled into jesus's hand and now it's super special and by super special, I mean Anderson sticks himself in the chest with it, and it turns him into a thorn monster because Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Like, the logic is there, right? But it's it's so interesting that it's like, it, it feels very grab bag of like, this was just a regular item, but it touched divinity. So it gained an, an ability that wasn't, it wasn't blood related, which would have made probably more direct sense, but uh, he was wearing a crown of thorns. So this turns into a thorn monster. <laughs> yeah, no, one of my favorite episodes of the Chipman Brothers Tangent was when Chris and Bob talked about their time at Catholic school. And I can't remember which one of them said it, but they described it as being like Harry Potter with some of this stuff. Like, now this is the finger bone of St. Agnes Third, And if you kiss it, you will gain all these magical powers. And they couldn't understand why Harry Potter was such a big thing because it's the same stuff, just plays magic with Christ. Yeah, and that's what happens in most uh, usages of, of Christian background as your basis for a magic system in fiction is it's like it's just something that you know some part of some important person right uh with you know a a piece of jesus or a thing that jesus touched or something that a saint touched the cross itself is symbolism is really big deal it's funny because it's pretty much the opposite of um, eldritch horror and that you can't really have symbolism in eldritch horror not really because it's the whole unknowable thing but symbolism is everything in the the uh, catholic occultism like that's why the cross is such is like probably the well most well-known symbol what in the world arguably no matter your feelings on it 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 probably is you know it when you see it yeah exactly and the fact that there are so many mythological creatures that are like repelled by just a cross (laughs) what what is it i think i remember i love seeing in uh daybreakers i think that movie was awesome i think it was willem dafoe who like made a cross with shotguns <laughs> yep so, that's right it, no it was a cross it was a shotgun that flipped into a cross yeah, exactly he shot out both sides it was so awesome <laughs> yeah that movie is just so much dumb fun it's not even funny like one of the most well, so one of the most well-known examples of using this kind of uh, occultism right now is supernatural, which we've talked about at length before. But supernatural is filled with demons and devils and angels and God themselves. So, and uh, what supernatural tends to do is actually tie catches a lot of old like occultism. Like I mentioned, the uh, lines of salt and iron. That is like 
that is old occultism. That's not really connected to the the Satanism, Catholicism conversation right now. But Supernatural is very good about picking up pretty obscure pieces of the mythology it's touching and and expanding on them. It sometimes not for all the best. Sometimes reasons, it's but, a swing and a miss. Yeah, like the f- well, I'm not going to go in, <laughs> particularly when the pagan gods show up. But we'll talk about that later. Oh <laughs> boy. Oh. Any, anyway, but they they are very interesting with how like one thing I always loved was the idea um, the, the paradise lost concept, right? The idea that uh, the devil was an angel, and Supernatural is one of two shows I feel like that has touched that really well because the whole concept of Supernatural is that uh, the devil's an archangel, and that's why a bunch of the other demons actually don't like him or afraid of him because he's still an angel. The other one being Lucifer. Which is amazing for a whole different set of reasons, but that's you know Neil Gaiman. So I've heard him say, you know, people have asked him how much, you know, did your comic influence the show Lucifer? And he said the character name and a few things here and there, but everything else they've done on their own, and it's just wonderful. Oh yeah, he's basically just inspiration. Like the show itself has very little to do with um, Neil Gaiman's own uh, Lucifer story, but the character is. Like I before I knew it was a Neil Gaiman story, I watched the first episode. Like this feels like a Neil Gaiman character, and yeah, it, it does. And that's one of the interesting things. I mean, the reason we see both uh, Christianity and Satanism and all that stuff is when you take away the heavy-handed religious aspects, there is some fascinating concepts for stories. I mean, Darksiders, make of what you will, but that was a fun game just to play mindlessly. And Legion had potential. I will say that Darksiders pissed me off because Pestilence wasn't a uh, one of the four horsemen. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to talk about... Yeah, they really crapped the bed with getting creative in their gods, or, you know, their four like horsemen. Like Fury and War? What the hell's with that? Anyway. And Wrath, right. and it's just like, listen, you're just doing war four times over. But you know, the whole concept of angels and demons fighting it out in this big sci-fi extravaganza is like, why aren't there movies like this? You don't need the morality to, you know, go, hey, there's a dude. He's got a spear that shoots a holy beam of light that melts faces. And that thing over there, it throws flaming skulls that explode on impact. That sounds like an awesome movie, huh? Funded by the Catholic Church. You know, that's actually one of my favorite things that recently, as in only in the last like 15 years or so, fiction has started really touching on the idea that angels don't have to be good at all. They are oh, yeah. righteous and pure, but that does not make them good. Like I love Old the Old um, Testament ones, they go around burning down cities and raping people. I don't know about raping. I believe you, but but like uh, my favorite. I mean, Supernatural is good about that because the angels basically are a holes and just good care omen, about like killing. Another great example. Good omens, yeah, where they don't care about humans at all. They care about their war. My one of my favorite examples is Diablo, where mm-hmm. in the Diablo universe, Tyrael's a badass because he's the archangel of justice. But like Malthiel and Imperius, they give no fucks about humanity. They have they have a job to kill demons. <laughs> so, or I would say the best parts about the Constantine movie is all his, like the uh, blessed uh, brass knuckles. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. See, but by that's... the way, can we let's take a, take a moment here? We talked a lot basically about uh, uh, Catholic occultism. We mentioned Satanism. Now, and here's the thing: this is probably not as contentious as a thing as it used to be. But I have met not as of Satanists. Not that many, like three or four, so my pool is not huge. But my impression of Satanists, based on my study of them and the ones I've met, is that they're not the, you know, fiction likes to paint them as uh, essentially cultists who are like, you know, drinking blood, sacrificing stuff. But most of them that I've met are latching onto the concept of uh, freedom from authority. Uh, uh, They worship Satan or Lucifer as the rebel. And that concept of like individual freedom and not being beholden to uh, a single entity that is like in control of your destiny. Does that make sense? Yeah, I haven't met me personally, but there's quite a few documentaries. And there was that fascinating issue last year when they won that lawsuit against Netflix for uh, copyright infringement. Look that up if you don't know what that's about. And the biggest thing I can take is like, you're a goofy bunch of motherfuckers, but you're mostly harmless. Yeah, pretty much, mostly. And now as far as how the occult works, the reason I brought that up is that in fiction, generally speaking, Satanists 
uh, occultism has a lot to do with symbolism. As we said, usually it's uh, the pentagram, which is the most well-recognized symbol of uh, Satanism, even though the pentagram itself is uh, originally a pagan symbol, particularly a Celtic pagan symbol, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. You know, Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, the goat, goat heads, because again, that's, well, that's, that's kind that's of... Pan. Well, you could argue that's Saturus is where they took that one from more. Well, specific specifically Carnunos from Celtic mythology, who was yeah, the horned god, that and most there's of his imagery was sick. Yeah, but there's a, a good argument to be made that most of the imagery relating to the devil as it was was uh, taken from Carnunos specifically, but not important. It's just kind of like how they took um, Ostara and made Easter out of her. Anyway. Or how they, you know, Zeus got turned into God. Or how Odin got turned into Santa. I don't... Yeah, no, there's a whole... Like, Christianity's, uh... How do I put this? Well, most contemporary religions are very much built on the bones of what came before them. That's that's, that's the polite way to say it, right? Christianity is built on the bones of uh, those that they took, they 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 made into bones. <laughs> would be the, the I was going with the polite way. Chris can only shield us so much. Hey, I'm just saying historically, man. But uh, nothing about anyway. My point is that so Satanism in movies and stuff has a lot to do with uh, blood, a lot of sacrifices. It's usually. Uh, involves invoking a being which is very different from how christian occultism like i said so christian occultism and catholic occultism has to do with touching a part of a being separate from that being itself so like that being still exists a great example these things that were artifacts of jesus jesus is not empowering these items he just touched them at one point and so now they are holy and powerful so like a priest with uh, the helena's nail doesn't need jesus's uh, you know, authority or permission to you know, get its power. In Satanism, in fiction anyway, this works very differently. Instead, it's you have to uh, summon essentially the entity that you want to deal with, and it will grant you a boon. That could be an item that it puts some sort of power in, but it has to directly like make some sort of agreement with you. There's no there's no implicit powers. There's no this thing is powerful just because. Like powers come very directly from the beings providing them in in most fictional satanic uh depictions that I've seen anyway. I think that's very yeah. interesting. It's always a sacrifice or you know a possession or something. I mean in that case, not a lot of times it's just the demon showed up to dick around with people and a you know doubting priest had to come and send it back to hell, and its motives are always very confusing and vague. Well, I mean, the best example, obviously, and the most well-known example being The Exorcist, where we've got a child who is being possessed by uh, probably a number of different entities, including the devil, very likely, and now we've just got two priests dealing with it, and there are weapons against it, the holy word, and symbols, uh, crosses and stuff. And what is the, the demon's weapon? It's just the demon's own power. So you've got symbolism and artifacts versus the entity itself. So there's this weird, like, that satanic creatures and occultism is very hands-on, whereas celestial creatures and occultism is very hands-off in most fiction. Isn't that interesting? Oh, the whole thing, like I said, more movies could be made of this if they were willing to kind of step back the morality and just take it for the, you know, Kirby-esque fantasy that it lends itself to. Well, it's because, like, that whole system tends to then say that heaven, in general, is not directly invested in Earth. Like, they take you know souls and they uh they might do light guidance but they don't put their hands in it in general whereas hell will get in there as at every opportunity according to fiction (laughs) oh yeah and again it's always for very nebulous purposes and it almost feels kind of you know childish and like i just want to fuck with some shit and then i'll be banished back to hell so i mean hell is kind of portrayed as being a really boring place where the whole thing is getting off possessing somebody and wrecking as much havoc as you can before you're banished back. Well, that's another thing, too, is that an exorcism, like you just said, is banishing a demon back to hell, not destroying a demon. You're just sending it away. (laughs) I mean, there are some exceptions to this, like Supernatural, of course, eventually got guns and blades that could actually kill these kind of deities, but 
in or these kind of not they're not all deities but these kind of entities is the word i meant to say but generally speaking yeah demonic entities aren't killed in fiction they are just sent back <laughs> have you ever noticed in all those based on true events possession movies the catholic church has varying degrees of belief and or commitment to the classical training of exorcism like in some it's like the catholic church has a dedicated group of priests i just kind of imagine you know a cop show where all these priests are just hanging around the light goes off it's the satan alarm get on it boys <laughs> i know oh. i'm going to hell for that joke but that would be a great uh sitcom by the way sorry i only just remembered a movie that i think is actually a really good depiction of eldritch horror event horizon sorry <laughs> i maintain Actually, yeah, you're right, because the warp is Eldric Horror at its finest. Oh yeah, the warp is complete the warp is a great intersection between uh satanic occultism and Eldritch Horror, because the the beings, the the chaos gods in Warhammer are knowable, certainly, but the nature of the warp is insanity. <laughs> I anyway. Sorry, let's, let's move on to we, Let's let's throw so a bandit off this last one. Well, we got two more but yeah let's go to the next one which i know that uh you've had a lot to say for a long time about this and this is wiccanism and neo-paganism so and i say neo-paganism because Ulrich and i are both technically neo-pagans by, by the legal definition of the term but we're not going to get into the details not of that but touching that one outside of it's just a label that i have to check Exactly. That's that. That's my point. Is that it's just a label. Like I consider myself an omnist. Now, you know, put me in a box, whatever. But uh, point is that what? How are these rituals portrayed in reality and in fiction and things like that? And I know that, like me, Ulrich has met many self-identifying Wiccans, and we both have a very specific uh, issue with modern day Wiccanism. <laughs> They're now, just fuck. That's not my issue, but <laughs> that's one of my issues because they never they don't even wait for you to ask to tell you that they are a ninth level Wiccan of the inner circle of the mother goddess and they can sense your aura and oh Okay. Uh, my main pro so here here's the thing about Wiccanism. If you are a Wicca, hey man, more power to you. If it gives your life meaning, that's great. I don't want to take anything away from you. Maybe don't, as Orca is saying it, don't bring it up without people bringing it up or question asking about it. I mean, I have a problem with that. I admit it. I'm, I'm a bard. I like telling stories of Norse mythology a lot, but I consider that like an entertainment thing, not a preachy kind of thing. Anyway, not the point. My problem with Wiccanism is that Wiccanism in general, not all, but the ones I've met tend to be a grab bag of other pagan things like they're not a single yeah they're not a single thing themselves they're like i'm going to take this god from celtic mythology i'm going to take this ritual from nordic mythology i'm going to take this story from greek mythology and they just pick and choose and there's nothing i guess inherently wrong with that if if you the the problem is when they try and tell me that it's ancient and it's based on this ancient paganism of central Celtic Europe, like no, it was invented by a European aristocrat in the 17th century who got really into that whole bag, and you know decided that this horned god had to be something more. And it's a whole big thing. I had a great great grandfather that was a druid at the time because that was what the upper class did. They reenacted ancient pagan rituals because don't know why. When you got money and there's no television, what else do you do? And I suppose for me, and this is this is definitely elitist of me to say, so feel free to call me a snob. I it's it's fine, it's accurate. But I feel like if you're gonna take like seventy percent of Celtic mythology for your particular belief system, why don't you just be a Celtic neo-pagan? Because most of what you're dealing with is just Celtic neo-paganism. Why why try to grab bag a few other things and make something that's just, you know, almost there, but not quite, right? I don't know. And I'm sure we're going to get comments explaining it. So let's steer it back on course. In how not so much the Wiccans, but the ancient pagan gods get used a lot in pop culture for any time 
you want spooky magic or an evil deity or a cult that wants to sacrifice travelers. Okay, but I want to just for my own sake, and I like I said, I don't care if you insult me, but I, I have no actual problem if you believe in Wiccanism, if you consider yourself a Wicca, that's great. It's all just a matter of like preference, you know, more power to you. This is just a personal it's like it's like I have no problem if you're a Christian. I just always thought the idea that someone could have an eternity in hell for a finite amount of behavior was didn't make any sense to me. So like that doesn't mean that anyway, point is I can criticize without like telling you you can't be the thing. So be the thing you want to be. Go ahead. Now, it's for pagan rituals. I know that uh, generally speaking, we have a lot of overlap with uh, satanic stuff in fiction. Uh, sacrifices are a common thing, although to be fair, especially in mine and your particular uh, ancient pagan rituals, sacrifices were definitely a thing because Odin specifically was god of the gallows and the um, festival at Uppsala, uh, which was about 60% accurately portrayed by the show Vikings. <laughs> well, I'm not um, going to contest that they didn't sacrifice people, but that's always the go-to. It's like, we're sacrificing people to bring in the harvest. Or we're sacrificing people because our willies don't work. Or it's always sacrificing. You know, there's there's other things you can draw from that well, also, right? <laughs> also, sacrifice doesn't always mean the things that people think it means. Like, example, in modern... Uh, neo-paganism uh, germanic neo-paganism a simple sacrifice can be something like buying a drink and pouring it out and saying like just a couple words to the god that you are sacrificing this uh this fluid to right you're not asking for anything big but it's just like a small a sacrifice doesn't have to be blood a sacrifice can be anything you're giving up something you are sacrificing as long something as it's value but exactly. the other thing i noticed is and it's almost always used in Boy, aren't these people crazy? They believe in a goat head man. Meanwhile, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, I'm gonna stop myself on that joke there. We've already pissed off enough people. Well, George Carlin made that joke years ago that you were about to make. So, <laughs> but I know that uh, what what is it? A, a big thing too about how the occult is portrayed is usually pagan beliefs are attached to very rural communities, which I think is very interesting. Like the idea, aka that, ignorant people. They're coded to be ignorant and lesser known. It's let's talk about the best example, the Wicker Man. I mean, take your pick, because they both do the whole thing like, oh, this island of regressive people, and in the original, just really honed in on the phallic worship. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't have much to say about that. <laughs> well, it's just like again, the things that when they talk about pagan rituals, they tend to focus on. Boy, these people sure are kooky. They believe in blank. Boy, they do love themselves the phallic symbols because uh, easy grab thing. And boy, they love murdering people for this dumb reason. Here's the thing. Do we see artifacts very often in uh, pagan portrayals? I don't really think we do. I mean, other than some big ones, like things like, you know, Mjolnir or um, what was a good Greek example? Oh, uh, the... Uh, the 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 lion the special lion what was it's called uh, special it's, lion the Themian the, lion Thessian lion which one are you talking oh, about oh golden golden fleece oh yeah the golden uh, that's, that's, lion how did you get from lion to fleece I think because in one of the I think in God of War it was like a lion's skin or something like that uh, that was so probably Hercules whole Thessian thing and I'll address the wiener phallic thing comes because both the Greeks and the Romans thought that was just hilarious. So they put it on everything and made it into everything. And again, it's a great way to be reductive about these simple people. They're so obsessed with this childish thing. Anyway, but here's what I want to say about artifacts. It's interesting. Artifacts, when they do show up in, in pagan mythology and how pagan mythology is portrayed, their power is imbued almost always like you look at like the greek artifacts things like uh like the golden fleece or um Demian why am i losing like that's a line all right that's not an Demian, artifact Demian. but yeah that's i was just mixing that up but uh or you look at something like uh, you know in norse artifacts things like mjolnir and gungir and whatnot um those items get their power directly from like an entity who is purposely putting like a power in that you look at like Mjolnir, there's an entire story about 
uh, Loki tricking these dwarves basically into making these artifacts for the gods to try to win their favor, including Mjolnir. So it's like these artifacts, which are super important in mythology, were just made by some dwarves. Like uh, Avaldi, I think, was one, and I don't remember the other one's name. Brock. Brock? Right. I th uh, yeah, I think it's Valdi and Brock. Yeah, I think uh, – I'm not sure, but I think you're right. But the point is they made these items – for the gods with these powers intentional and the gods just got them in greek mythology most artifacts and are like something that was normal and that the gods were like all right now it has this power for for you like yeah uh, it's imbuing it's the conscious choice and i think it's interesting that again in pop culture we don't see that aspect it's always kind of used typically in horror movies as kind of the butt of a joke or you know a simple thing they never really kind of go into the deeper stuff because i mean i think you could make an interesting series i'm not quite sure how you get it but basically do what the thule society was after with world war ii artifacts but you make a whole series about that and i realized i just pitched indiana jones yeah basically except indiana jones was very focused on on a christian and catholic uh well you know, the director was Jewish, so I don't know how much he knew about Thor's hammer. Or, but I think there's some cool things you could get out of that. I mean, the Thule Society was just as interested in Germanic stuff. Do you know of any good Egyptian mythological artifacts? I know plenty of good Egyptian stories, but none that are based around artifacts. I wonder if it's because like their society was built around the only material goods that matter were the ones that were like pharaohs had. <laughs> yeah, and the pharaohs were gods themselves so i don't know i know no that one doesn't no i can't really think of a lot that kind of fall into that thing the egyptian ones is its own kind of interesting untapped well that that one we have seen a lot just in how they do the mummy movies or variations of the mummy movies they really you know dig into that one and well egyptian egyptian paganism specifically like you just mentioned the mummy movies but not just the mummy movies almost any egyptian mythology depicted in fiction is wholly focused on the death aspect well uh, the egyptians the were focused on the death aspect they had whole books and books you had to save up your entire life to get yeah but like my favorite egyptian mythological figure is sobek the crocodilian god of the nile and you almost never see him in egyptian like mythology depicted in movies because he wasn't anubis essentially well anubis looks cool and has a fun name sobek is a crocodile come on <laughs> i'm not arguing with you i'm just saying where my train of thought goes because that is an interesting one. Egyptian ones, they do tend to take wholesale, and it typically is around mummies, resurrection, and death. And that's probably because those are the best-known cultural touchstones we have for them. I mean, the Greeks, it's typically around Hercules, and that one, I haven't really done a good Hercules movie here's, ever. Here's another thing about that that's interesting. Paganism, the word paganism, is generally uh, a, like connotated with Egypt Hellenistic, which is Greek for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Germanic, which would be Norse, and Celtic, which would be you know, your Irish and Scottish and, and things like that. But paganism also applies to uh, South American paganism, where you get your things like your Mayan and Aztec beliefs. Uh, Chinese paganism is crazy and has a lot of great stories about like basically people who became gods. Um, Pacific Island paganism, like that's where things like Moana come from and uh oh man hawaiian mythology is so cool like with these like volcano gods and stuff it's but you never hear like those associated with the term and i wonder if that's because like people generally who refer to themselves as pagans were very specifically into western european paganism even though egypt is actually north african that was a big enough society to kind of overlap but you don't see it in the like you know usually referred to in these other areas you know yeah and i think that Part of that is because we mentioned earlier, says, Wiccans are very loud and proud about that, so that kind of ties in. Plus, like we kind of talked about, pop culture doesn't really want to use pagan stuff except in a reductionist way or occasionally as, well, not even settings. I mean, God of War sort of used it as a setting, but even then I don't know how accurate a lot of that was. Well, here's the thing is that most pagan stories, uh, when they're told in fiction, are told at the time of those things. You know, the basic example of thing. You know, That's true. Like, yeah, you look at um, Clash of the Titans, and that's not a 
every every now and then you get something like Percy Jackson, which is you're dealing with. I was about to say we got to talk about Percy Jackson. I haven't read the series personally, but I know it really did use the full scope of the uh, Hellenistic pantheon. Here's the thing: I have not read Percy Jackson, but I have read the first two Magnus Chase books, which is Rick Riordan doing Norse mythology, and. While it's, it's a little hard for me to read it because it's very obviously meant for a younger audience, uh, and sometimes that it makes it a little difficult for me to stay engaged, the guy knows his stuff, and he is very good at figuring out very interesting ways to modernize gods. My favorite example is when Thor shows up. First of all, the the narrator just actually mentions Marvel Thor because these books came out like you know not that long ago, and says that real Thor looks nothing like you know, that uh, Chris Hemsworth and that real Thor is like got long curly red hair and this big bright red beard. He's got like tattoos and he looks more like a, a biker, but he's obsessed with like television that he watches on Mjolnir while he's waiting, while he's patrolling like, um, you know, borders. So he loves shows like Sons of Anarchy and Game of Thrones. And, <laughs> and just, I'm not sure if that's brilliant or just really, really reductionist. I think it's brilliant. The The one that was the most brilliant to me, though, was when he introduced uh, Heimdall, right? So Heimdall, who, you know, in the actual mythology is just like the Watcher. So he's also the God of Truth, but not the point. Point is, his main thing he's known for is being able to see, like, everything. And he will sound the horn on the Bifrost when the time of Ragnarok comes. So what Riordan chose to do is, since he can see everything, and... Uh, his, his main item is supposed to be a communication to um, all the other gods, eventually, that the modern version of Balder is a selfie-obsessed person. Like, he sits on the Bifrost, and he just takes selfies with, like, he from, from where he's standing. Oh, here's one with Eiffel Tower. Oh, here's one with the Grand Canyon. And... <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't know what to make of that. But I mean, we are starting to see a little bit more examples, but they still kind of shy away from it, because Thor, the MCU movie, like we talked about, the first one, it was really kind of cool. We thought, are they going to address the fact that, you know, these are gods walking amongst men? And then the second movie, they stomped down hard, going, we are not gods. And we both went, boo, own it, you cowards. And then the third movie owned the hell out of it. And regardless of your other feelings on Ragnarok, you know that that was awesome when Odin was like, are you the god of hammers? <laughs> yeah, no, they kind of, you know, and I think I have thought multiple thoughts on that. I think they're kind of afraid of offending people by declaring these, you know, gods. And, you know, that's why they've reduced it back. And in the comics, they've gone back and forth on their whole divinity and whatnot. But I just thought it was a wasted opportunity for the first two movies that they really kind of shied away from that. Yeah. Anyway, our, our long kind of point we're getting around is that, generally speaking, there's not modern paganism in fiction and the few times it does happen they tend to either be like really good like bright spots like i think regard again even though i'm not that into it i think reordan is doing good work because it's a great way to introduce young kids to pretty accurate versions of these mythological stories but uh generally speaking then you get something like again now we have to talk about it supernatural who deals with pagan gods in a very specific way first time they showed up was actually pretty cool it was just a village that brought over a tree and there was a god essentially connected to that tree and they would you know sacrifice a couple people to it once a year for harvest and yeah it was a little cliche paganistic rural area sacrificing people but the idea that it was a tree it was a scarecrow you didn't specify what god it was they said it was one of the veneer which makes sense because they were nature and fertility gods so that's why it'd be in a tree uh, the fact that they even said that word, I was like, oh, that's cool. They, yeah, I remember one. Are they going to do anything more with that? Or no, they just saw that word in a book and thought it looked cool. Okay. And then cut to, what, season five? And you have Lucifer literally murdering Odin and Mercury and all these other... It turns out that, oh, no, all the pagan gods were actually just, like, kind of strong equivalents to what vampires are, essentially. Yeah, and I did I, not... Well... So, See, they made the mistake of coming down hard on the one true God philosophy and wrote themselves into that corner and kind of kneecapped what pagan gods could be. What's funny is that I like that in a lot of the original uh, Christian stories, the other gods exist. They're just not as strong as the, the Christian God or Yahweh or you know, whatever you want to call it. Like One of my favorite stories, uh, Noah and the Whale, right? At the beginning of the Noah and the Whale story, 
Like the reason why he goes over the ship in the first place is because this crazy storm is happening. And the captain's like, okay, whose God is doing this? Uh, and like, he, you know, points to his crew member. He's like, oh no, my God's just the God of the land. He didn't do stuff like that. It's like, oh, my God's the God of the sky, but he's not the God of the sea. And then it gets to Noah and he's like, my God is the God of before all others. He created all the, you know, the world and the sky and the sea. And yes, he could definitely do this. And they were like, your God does all that. Get off my ship. And they threw him overboard. But the it's point classic, is, classic. Uh, my dad can beat up your dad. Kinda. But e- even in the Moses story, right? Like in the original story, the Egyptian, um, I don't know what the word is, but the whole turning like the staff into a snake and then Moses turns his staff into a snake and his, his snake eats the other snakes. It's like, He's, they still were able to turn their staffs into snakes. Their gods exist, just the 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 god of Moses' god is more powerful. And that was always kind of, to me, what was actually going on there. And that's was, uh, I felt like they maybe overcompensated that in Supernatural. But Well, the problem kind of became, and this is a problem Supernatural has in general, is they established that the gods and the angels were super duper powerful. But... So that meant they had to, you know, knock the old gods down a peg or two, but they still be killable by Sam and Dean, and that's kind of become the problem. Shows there's nothing those two can't kill, and well, I think I like I know American when, gods. When when Dean killed Death, I was like, all right, this has crossed my stupid line. I can no longer. Oh yeah, that was that was like okay, you've you've done it. But I kind of like what American gods did in that. All gods exist, but they draw their power from how many followers they have. So Odin may have been stomping around kicking ass in the 9th century, but the 19th century, not so much. Which is also why in the book, Jesus doesn't show up, Neil Gaiman said, because there was nothing anyone could offer him that would, you know, entice him. He already get, had, is, well, he's doing just fine. <laughs> and that's why that was such a weird inclusion in the show. I, I like that. Okay, I haven't seen season two at all. I know you gave up on it. I'll get to it eventually. But I liked the idea of like all the different Jesuses at Easter. I place. liked it, but it still kind of felt weird. <laughs> all right. Uh, we can go on about paganism for literally ever because we've been talking about it on and off for, let's see, uh, 10 years at this point, right? Give or <laughs> so, take. So let's move on. We won't talk about this very long because neither one of us are qualified. Voodoo and hoodoo. Okay, I'll go ahead and take this one. Voodoo is almost never properly represented in any film or TV series. People always focus on the wrong things. (laughs) Yeah, well, voodoo is a religion that combines African spiritualism with Catholicism. It's a really fun, interesting hybrid religion that I highly encourage you to go look into. What they typically show is hoodoo, which is the non-spiritual magic that goes alongside it. Also something that in my uh, in my life I was always told not to mess with. <laughs> well, what I like about voodoo gods is when you pray to a voodoo god, it's very much like demons in that they come and they quote-unquote ride you or Take your spirit, take your body like they like you would a horse, and you know ride along and do all sorts of things. So you wake up in Tijuana with a tattoo on your ass that says uh, Sam Edie was here, and you're like, the hell happened? So yeah, I can see that. Don't mess with that one. So also as a white guy, probably not good to go messing with African spiritualism. Yeah, that's why I said neither one of us are qualified to speak on voodoo. Really, I can tell you that in fiction generally speaking, the rules of occultism and voodoo tend to always be based on sacrifice. So similar problem to uh, paganism and Satanism. It's usually chickens for some reason. Yeah, that's the one I don't think is actually part of voodoo. Yeah, why is it always chickens? I don't don't know. But Uh, the rural south and the islands, chickens are plentiful, staple of food. I guess. Uh And of course, the most well-known image or symbol of voodooism, the voodoo doll, Right, which is supposed to be basically a a, a mummet, a uh, a connected item to a person that you do to do to the item that happens to the person, and I don't know what level of reality uh, that's based in, but in fiction it is it's extremely common, and it's the idea of like you have to have something that is connected to the person attached to your doll or your figure, and that it's usually you you start putting it over fire or you pin prick it. And that way you can damage a, a being from any distance without them being aware that you're even doing it. 
I think most things we associate with voodoo are relatively new. Like, I don't know how far back zombies go, but I know that that was a big terror tactic used when uh, Haiti was under their dictator. And he, you know, had the boogeymen and the zombies, and he really leaned in to the whole voodoo part. And I just, I don't know how much of that is traditional voodoo. I'm kind of curious if anyone in the comments could let us know how much of what pop culture associates with voodoo is actually true. I would be interested in anyone who's studied voodoo properly to know, because it's it's definitely the one on this list that I know the least about and don't claim to to know real like anything about. I feel like it's easily the most reducted in fiction. Like I feel like even paganism, with its amount of like getting reduced, uh, doesn't hold a candle to how much Hollywood likes to not give voodoo a proper, you know. They don't, you know, they don't ever really talk about the gods or how that works. I mean, Sam Edie occasionally shows up, but I think I can count on like one hand the amount of times he's been mentioned in, you know, literature and movies. I mean, I would argue there are definitely uh, belief systems and occult systems that are less represented, but none that are so misrepresented, I think as voodoo 100 and again that probably goes back to it's an african spiritualist belief and not many of those are getting made i'm still waiting on that anansi movie i don't know what it's about but i think there's plenty of stories to be done there for anyone who doesn't know anansi who is the african spider god who basically in their mythology is the progenitor of the story the weaver of tales read some of his mythology it's amazing there's a story about him stealing a tiger's balls and using them for his own. It's hilarious and wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so we kind of ended on a weak note that didn't really think that through all the way, but voodoo, hoodoo, all that stuff is great. Kind of closing thoughts. We are not qualified to talk about it as two white men. Um, my, closing, my closing thoughts, I want to say, is that I want to see more Pacific Island uh, cultures oh, yeah. and mythology and things. That is the, the one that I feel like is so underrepresented for how good it it is because even like if you look at chinese cinema you actually see plenty of great like films or interesting films about like chinese mythology there is very little pacific island mythology and we get like the fact that we got moana should be enough to like spur more creators to do things with that because like that is really cool right so why isn't there more anyway i'm looking at it we kind of talked in descending order with how well represented each of these, you know, occult things is in pop culture. And we got to Voodoo, like, don't really know much, but that's because no one's making anything about it. And Pacific Islander and other, you know, paganisms probably couldn't even name a god if we. Yeah, pr pretty much. <laughs> so there you go, Hollywood. Make more uh, projects make, involving make those things. Yeah, make more make movies about voodoo where you actually delve into mythology. Make some Pacific Islander stuff. Just make some South American stuff that isn't just like you know the Aztecs. Like there are plenty of interesting gods there. Uh, show us some China. We don't need to touch Japanese anime. Deals with that just fine. But China could use some like Western movies that deals with it. There's plenty. And they're a huge market. You know you want that market. Anyway, that's my little like end rant where it's like I I love movies about uh, or I love the idea of like Lovecraftian and and pagan and stuff as much as anyone, but I want to see more stuff that isn't already represented a bunch. All right, let's move on to our suggestions of the week. And, okay, uh, real quick, I'm gonna I'm gonna get ahead of you uh, and just say that I my suggestion of the week is. I was going to suggest the Steven Universe movie until I realized that anybody who that suggestion would matter to has already seen it. So it was good, right? <laughs> cool. All right. Anyway, and then and then I thought I could suggest Borderlands 3 because I've been playing that on uh, PlayStation because I won't buy it through the Epic Game Store. I'm going to wait to get on PC until I can get on Steam. But And then I also realized, again, anyone who that suggestion would be aimed at almost certainly already has it. So it's pretty good, right? <laughs> so anyway, those are my two half suggestions. I think you overthink it because my suggestion, I guarantee our audience has already heard of it, and that was Amazon's The Boys. Uh, didn't know anything about this going in except the comic is quintessential, early 2000s edgelord, and I can live without that in my life. 
I've watched the first three episodes and I will watch more as soon as I have time. <laughs> oh yeah. The other thing is as I watched, like this is really good. And I kept seeing people who had read the comics going, Oh, they found a way to make this workable. Okay. Uh, the basic premise. And I kind of immediately started realizing why I like this is kind of Watchmen esque in that it asked the question, all right, what, what happened? What, what a world look like that had superheroes where they were essentially I don't want to say assholes because that feels a bit derivative, but actually the best way to put it would be what if superheroes, but athletes because that's a good one. Yeah. Because they're sponsored. They're human. They have the the same kind of, you know, some of them are good. Some of them are a-holes, but because they're super, them being a-holes has way worse uh, things that happen. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah and it really does kind of dive into the whole concept of collateral what these collateral what kind of collateral damage would superman bring what would happen if the flash was you know out in the streets and it kind of looks goes for a ground weight but it's still very fun tongue-in-cheek and the big kind of draw for this was carl urban which i was watching i was this. about to say man carl so for anyone who doesn't know we here at geeks with shields love carl urban we love particularly dread because we Dread is awesome. Dread made another. Yeah, but Carl Urban is amazing in basically everything he does, even the movies that aren't that good. I love seeing him. And in this movie, he does the thing that he is best at doing, which is being a kind of crotchety older guy who's grumpy but funny and charismatic. <laughs> yeah, and I remember watching this and I turned to Slack and going, Why don't we see Carl Urban in more things? And she said, Because I think he just does whatever he wants to do that sounds like fun. And you can tell watching this, that's exactly what he's doing. So he assembles a superhero hit squad. I won't give away too many details, but that is the basic premise, is him and his group are out to kill superheroes. And it is bloody, and it is gory, and it is very over the top at points. But it's still kind of fun, and it does make you pause and kind of wonder and go, okay, yeah, I can see if that... uh, Aquaman had a corporate sponsor who could cover up all his things. That might happen. Or, you know, if superheroes did exist, they would totally have talk shows and merchandise. And it's a very grounded, realistic take that doesn't stray into the early DCEU territory of everything is dark and grim and sad. I will also say that at least as far as episode three is, or into episode three is concerned, this ain't like, this this is not really a spoiler because by the end of episode one, you know this. But Homelander, who is the Superman analog, is one of the best versions of the deconstructionist Superman I have seen in a long time, at least so far. Oh, yeah. No. And there's a point you will kind of pause and empathize with it. Well, not empathize. Well, empathize, because, yeah, you do understand where he's coming from. But then the things they have him do, you just turn against him so hard, and I'm so excited for season two. Yeah. Anyway. I also I want to know what Black Noir's power is. Another one of the main heroes of the show, for those who don't know. It's it's basically the, the main heroes that are present are, think, the Justice League. That's the most it's, obvious. Yeah, it's very Justice League-y inspired. Yeah, whereas Carl uh, Urban and the boys are, I don't even know what to compare them to. They're just disgruntled (laughs) that's a great word all right we've run longer than planned but hey we had a good time so thank you for listening be sure to like share subscribe do all the things because that is literally how podcasts live and i don't have my list here so i'm gonna go off the top of my head but whatever uh platform you're watching us on thank you we are on uh, google play uh stitcher soundcloud and pocket cast right did i get them all Yep, you got them all. All right, so if one of those is better for you, well, hey, we're on there too. And if there's one that you would rather us be on for whatever reason, let us know what it is and we'll look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.